agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Well, like, uh, I think probably like half the country, um, I'm, I'm digging out. Dig, digging out, yeah, I, I, I know digging that. Digging out. But I'll tell you, I, I did enjoy the, I enjoyed the snow day. Actually, we had, um, you know, I, I like to say that uh, justice doesn't take a snow day. Uh, but in fact, yesterday it did. So yes, that was it, nice. No day. I, have, I have a friend who referred to what we had here in Cincinnati as Ice Crete. And I sort of it, definitely uh, a lot of digging out it involved not that fluffy, fun sort of snow. But uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, I, before we get started, I wanted to thank all the listeners who had the opportunity and the time to take our listener survey. Uh, we gleaned some, I think. Valuable insights. We're going to be sort of digging through the data and the, and the responses in the next week or two and kind of use that to give you ideally more of the stuff you want and less of the stuff you maybe aren't so crazy about. So thanks so much for taking the time to do that. Now, on today's show, we have a whole bunch of stuff lined up for you, like Russia and Ukraine. No war yet, at least as of right now, Saturday morning, but we'll see. Uh, Donald Trump, the Electoral Count Act, Mike Pence's response and uh, censure of Kinsinger and Cheney, all that going on. Uh, uh, controversy over Ginny Thomas, that's Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, conservative firebrand, both of them, I guess, and the issue of judicial recusal. And, and in this week between the conference championships and the Super Bowl, uh, uh, an NFL-themed story, Brian Flores suing the NFL for racial discrimination, and we'll talk about that. And finally, the story that a lot of folks in the podcasting world and the world in general, I guess, are talking about Joe Rogan and Spotify and whether you, you know, want to choose Neil Young or Joe Rogan. I think Spotify made their choice. But anyway, we'll talk about that and more. But before we do that, before we get started, we'll take a quick break and then we will kick things right off. All right, so we'll open today with the ongoing tensions between Russia and Ukraine, though I guess maybe tension seems too mild to kind of describe the brink of war sort of situation that uh, currently exists. Now, on Tuesday, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin said, we have not seen adequate consideration of our three key requirements concerning the prevention of NATO expansion, the refusal to deploy strike weapon systems near the Russian borders, as well as the return of the military infrastructure of the bloc in Europe to the state of 1997, <laughs> going way back when the Russian NATO founding act was signed. He also said that NATO refers to the right of countries to choose freely, but you cannot strengthen someone's security at the expense of others. Now, President Biden this week authorized deployment of 3,000 U.S. troops to Poland, Germany, and Romania in a show of support. But a Pentagon spokesperson emphasized that these forces would not be fighting in Ukraine should Russia invade. Late this week, the Biden administration alleged that they have intelligence in, in the information that the Russians plan to film a fake attack by Ukrainian forces against the Russian troops massed at the border as sort of a pretext to invade Ukraine. But I should point out that the administration was either unwilling or unable to provide anything that publicly corroborates this claim. 
And while, you know, at least 100,000 Russian troops remain massed on that country's border with Ukraine, and the U.S. has provided over 90 tons of military aid to Ukraine in the last few weeks, the White House has actually stepped back from statements made last week referring to a Russian invasion as imminent. Our White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters, we stopped using that word because I think it sent a message that we weren't intending to send, which was that we knew President Putin had made a decision. Now, there's a domestic politics aspect of this as well, Jay. But before we get to that, I wanted to get your take on on what you make of this week's developments and whether or not you think a Russian invasion is more or less um, imminent, uh, likely than it was a week or two ago. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's still um, likely. And, you know, this is a weird space for for you and I to be in. Right. Because. There are, are a lot of things that we simply don't know. We, we don't have the intelligence reports that, that uh, hopefully uh, our, our governing officials have. Uh, we don't know sort of the situation on the ground. We don't know, you know, what's happening beyond what we, we see or read in the news. Um, that said, I, I think it's, it's been plain for quite some time that Putin's ambition is to reunite what had been the former Soviet Union. Um, and and Ukraine is is a big part of doing that. Now, he also, you know, he might take a second prize type type thing of if he can uh, influence that government enough uh, to essentially make it a satellite state without invading. Uh, perhaps he'd do that. Uh, and right now he's he's I think he's just having fun playing this game of what me invade, um, uh, which is why uh, Jen Psaki sort of had to to walk back the. Um, statements of well, with an invasion's imminent, and well, well, you know, we're not invading. Um, so uh, you know, all in all, I, I have to say, I, um, uh, unlike uh, George W. Bush, I, I can't see into Vladimir Putin's soul. Um, but I suspect it, it's not so good. And, and what he's looking for is some sort of control over Ukraine, whether that comes from a, a direct invasion or just from this sort of getting concessions by bullying. Uh, and and you know get the the actual invasion down the line, um, uh, right? There's no there's no uh, timeline that he necessarily needs to uh, invade, and it it looks as if we're not going to do anything to force the removal of troops. At least there hasn't been any sort of discussions along along those lines yet. Um, all in all, I I I, I am less I am less uh, upset with the Biden administration than I, I I thought I would be at this point, right? I think they're they're uh, the the administration I think is actually being stronger than what I anticipated. Um, so I I I generally I, I you know sort of kudos to that. Uh, I think our responses have been uh, appropriate. Um, we're realizing that look, we the United States is not going to go in and provide um, actual fighting forces in the Ukraine. Um, what it can and should do and continue to do is, is make sure that we provide weapons so that Ukraine can defend itself, uh, at least to the uh, uh, level that uh, it, it raises the cost uh, to Putin to, to invade. Yeah, you know, um, I, and, and I, I, well, I was going to say, I, 
you know, you suggest that Putin's having fun with this, uh, what what me invade sort of thing. But, but it almost seems that at least some analysts would suggest that this has actually made the sort of eastern border of the, the states, you know, bordering on Russia less, uh, more inclined to side with the West because of this sort of bullying and saying, well, well, my gosh, you know, we definitely need to be, uh, can, can we get into NATO? And if we can't, can we have some sort of agreement or some sort of support? And so it could actually potentially run counter to what Putin wants, which which sort of backs him more into a corner, because if he wants control over Ukraine by one way or another, you could you could say where his actions are actually making it less likely that he would get control in any other way than through an actual invasion of, of that country. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I, but, um, you, but, you know, you mentioned the domestic politics aspect of it, and I wanted to, to get on that because – you know, uh, on the domestic front, of course, there's been, I think, fairly solid support for the administration's response from congressional Democrats and plenty of opposition from congressional Republicans. And that's, you know, pretty typical. But what's interesting to me about Republican opposition is that there's a split, the split between Republicans that believe that Biden isn't doing enough to deter Russian aggression and support Ukraine. And then there are those who feel that Biden's behaving too provocatively, too aggressively. And, you know, there's that not enough camp. They're kind of the establishment Republicans, right? The RNC. That would be me. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, the RNC, yeah. they've, they've really slammed Biden again and again for what they call his weakness in the face of this Russian hostility, though. You seem to be a little less kind of slamming of Biden saying, yeah, it seems pretty much reasonable. OK, so but still, I, I, well, I, I will I will say without I don't want to interrupt you, but no, no. I, I think I, I support generally the the sense that that we've got right um that that um um uh the the uh administration is going to take steps and is going to stand up against uh aggression to 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 the extent that it can um what uh concerns me a little bit is the execution um just just like afghanistan right um Biden had said some boneheaded things uh, in his press conference a couple of weeks ago, sort of implying that, like, well, minor incursions might be OK. Um, and then the administration had to walk that back saying, no, 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 we, we didn't mean you can invade, invade a little bit. Um, uh, and and again, the the you know, the this thing's imminent. And, and I, I don't know how this is going to play out with this. So the important, uh, the the important piece, but the important yeah. point is that you want you want to. You want to make clear that you are not indicating any sort of, you know, support per se for Biden administration, given the fact that you you, you would expect that at some point he's going to muck up the execution, even if you like yes, the yes. plan. OK, yes, but, yeah. but you will reserve judgment on whether or not the execution is mucked up until there actually is execution, if that, in fact, happens. Right. Well, because I, that's I, the I kind think of guy I you are. say the minor incursion stuff was was my sure. which is you know yeah. why presidents uh, these days don't generally don't give press conferences and try to have mediate all their communications through you know people who are actually paid to do that sort of thing like Jen Psaki that's, but but anyway so but there's this other part right the, the, the trumpist the maga the maga wing of the party you know they feel just the opposite and, and i think this charge is i don't think i know this charge is really being led by Tucker Carlson of Fox News who is uh, unquestionably to me, the single most influential voice in conservative media for uh, God help us. But Carlson has called Ukraine strategically. That, that hurts, Mike. Well, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> we'll put you at top five, Jay. But, you know, Carlson has called Ukraine strategically irrelevant to the U.S. He's argued that U.S. support for Ukraine is about, in his words, hubris, stupidity, 
the damaged psychological makeup of our leaders and massive lobbying campaigns by Ukrainian politicians and American defense contractors. And he's asked the question, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? They're both foreign countries that don't care anything about the United States. And Carlson's not alone in this. There have been a bunch of conservative, I don't know, influencers, voices, people, you know, who have pretty significant audiences. In fact, uh, last week, Donald Trump Jr. told Fox News' Sean Hannity that U.S. intelligence agencies might be lying in an attempt to instigate another war. So uh, this is not insignificant, certainly. And, and I wanted to get your take on this, Jay, the the, the MAGA wing, the, the Trumpist wing and their views on this, because, like I said, Tucker Carlson is the number one conservative voice in in the media. And what he says is heard and believed by millions of Americans. So what's your take on that? Oh, I I think he's he's wrong and he's he's incorrect and uh, <laughs> I, I guess you know the the parallel that that you would would look at and it's not it's not a great parallel right um, I want to state that at the beginning just because of some other things I'll probably say later on in the show um, but you know it, the parallel is is 1938 1939 um, and you know there's there's very much this sense of look this is a European problem. What interest do we possibly have in uh, in defending Ukraine? Um, and to some extent, I might agree with them a little bit. If you're looking at this as uh, what is our particular strategic interest in Ukraine, uh, and it's 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 almost and I'll, I'll make sort of the you know almost the Kissinger type argument. It's almost the same argument that uh, we would have had in uh, Korea or Vietnam. Um, it's less about the the uh, country and more about the principle uh, of of standing up against aggression and containing uh, foreign powers that want to be expansionist. Now, again, but Putin Putin isn't this. It's not you know obviously old school communism containment expansionism. Um, but I, my my concern is uh, if we want to to preserve uh, or or improve on or or uh, reclaim uh, U.S. hegemony. Um, uh, we need to reassure other places, other allies, other, other countries, um, that, that we won't, you know, it's it sort of, if, if, you know, are we the world's policemen? I, I think, yes, we are. And, and somebody's got to do it. And I, I think if, if we don't do it, then, uh, Vladimir Putin or more likely the Chinese do. So I think that's, that's the national interest. It's not anything particular in, in Ukraine, but it's it's in the interest of having a a law international law and order, so to speak. Yeah, and I I totally agree because uh, we've we've talked about the linkages between say Afghanistan and and Ukraine and potentially in the future you know Taiwan where it, it Taiwan, yeah. yeah it certainly seems feasible to me that uh, that Putin saw what. Biden did in Afghanistan and said, you know what, I this is a weak administration. They're not going to stand up. And so I I feel more comfortable in potentially invading Ukraine. And if we let if we let this go without a whole lot, then the Chinese look at that and, and think, you know, well, Taiwan, what 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 what's the administration going to do there? And, and like you said, even if we don't want to be the world's policemen, as, as it were, what well, will. The fact is, is that in a vacuum, someone's going to step into a power vacuum. And the question is, is do we want do we want us 
to be in that vacuum, or do we want the Russians and or the Chinese to be uh, occupying that position? And I think that's a pretty clear answer, given the fact that of those three of those three governments, regardless of you know how some people on the left feel about the the U.S. government, we sure as heck are a lot more democratic, and I think stand for far better ideals than the Chinese or the Russian governments. Yeah. So there you go. I, I think we're we're pretty much in complete uh, uh, complete agreement on that. And it's really so. So what do you think? I guess is motivating this Trumpist wing of the of the party. I mean, do you think that they do you think that they honestly believe these things, or do you think that they're just this sort of a cynical political calculation? I think there is, and and, and there always has been uh, an isolationist uh, wing. I say in American politics because they they were sometimes the Republican Party, but I think they've they've shown up on the uh, on on the left as well, right? There there was sort of a uh, isolationist wing of you know what are we doing supporting Israel? What are we doing in the Middle East? What all that sort of thing? Um, uh, so I think it's it's always been there, and and it it makes sense because there is there is a you know part of our country, part of our national ideology, part of our national identity is that. We are uh, separated by the from the rest of the world by by two big oceans, and we necessarily have, have had to worry less about the problems of other continents. Um, and and we we could in in many cases say, hey, that's that's simply not our problem. Um, but I think over and over, even even when we when we've said those things, right, and even when the world was different, um, like. You know, Mike, this is you know one of my things that I'm I'm kind of into. But um, you know, during the the Adams administration, the John Adams, we had, there was what was called a, a pseudo war uh, with France, and um, because France and England were at war because of Napoleon, and and there was this sense that the United States can just stay out of this because look, these these are countries that are at that time were were far more far away than they are now. Um, but really, we couldn't, and we ended up in the War of, War of 1812 um, because of those same tensions. Uh, and and I, I think those those kind of things are, are perennial, right? We we can't just say, um, and this you know it came back 9/11. Uh, much as we would we would like uh, to think we can just live our own lives and everyone else will leave us alone, um, the rest of the world doesn't feel that way. And and like I said, if you're Someone's going to be uh, that international policeman or or you will have international chaos. Um, either situation is not uh, sure. is not great. So. And, and it's it's more important than ever because of things like globalization, global supply yeah. chains and and certain resources that are only available in, in particular parts of the world, at least in right. large, you know, large quantities. And so we can't afford to basically just say, well, we'll just kind of retreat back within our borders and hope everything goes OK. I mean, China actually exactly. did that for a long time and that, you know, much to their uh, much to their uh, uh, it was very negative for them for, you know, a long period of time. And, you know, so, yeah. Absolutely. I think I, but what, what I'm saying is, is I, I understand. Oh, sure. Um, the impulse. That voice. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, the, the, we heard that in, in World War One, and uh, uh, that, that, you know, why should we send uh, American uh, boys to, to fight and die um, uh, over, you know, this this really Byzantine conflict, um, you know, involving the, the Germans and the French and the Serbs and the Austrians and, you know, uh, all this sort of. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I I understand it. So I don't I don't think it comes from a place of we support Putin 
you know, that sort of thing. I, I do think it is just the old fashioned American isolationism. Well, that's uh, so. You don't think there's any there's any element of uh, a cynical political calculation in that Tucker Carlson sincerely believes these things and that sort of thing. I, I, I'm just wondering. Well, you know, there's there's some on on the right who, and they're serious people um, who have said, "Listen, you know, we should should now or should have earlier." Probably would have been the better argument. And in, in fact, uh, look. Um, the, the Obama administration sort of you know, took this path at some point. Uh, we ought to have a good relationship with Russia to counterbalance China. That China is the much bigger threat um, or bigger competitor globally than Russia. Um, so we're, we are better off uh, being in the Russian camp um, uh, than, than out of it. Um, I think that's that's an understandable view. I think it's mistaken because of the, the character of Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think if you had someone else <clears throat> running running Russia, um, that that might that might make sense from a geopolitical, you know, viewpoint. And, and look, sometimes you're allied with people uh, that you'd rather not be allied with, but uh, you don't get to choose the the best uh, situation. It's it's sort of just the the least worst uh, typically. So, um, I, I understand that argument as well, right? That. Um, and it's it's the same look. It's the same argument that um, people in uh, in Europe and in England uh, made, uh, you know, regarding Hitler. That well, look, uh, yeah, we don't like this guy. Uh, he sure, sure looks like trouble, but he is a counterbalance against uh, the Soviet Union. Um, you know, so so. But again, I'm sort of I'm sort of thinking. Going, taking that same historical lesson, you know, look, look where that got you. So, yeah. I, I guess I, for one thing, I, I would, I would disagree to a certain extent with your characterization of of the uh, Obama foreign policy on that ground. But that that's a that's another issue. To your larger point, I absolutely agree with. And the reason why I'm, I'm picking on sort of in a sense Tucker Carlson is because here's a guy who I, who I think is like a classic sort of Harold Hill, the Music Man sort of con artist guy who you know. 10, 15 years ago was a standard issue establishment Republican, and that wasn't working out for him. And so all of a sudden he recreated himself into this or evolved into this sort of creature. And and I guess I have a certain uh, particular disgust for people like Tucker Carlson. And there are people like him on, on the left as well. And so they just sort of turn my stomach in a very special way. And that's why I may be calling out on uh, Tucker Carlson. So, yeah, but... Okay then. Uh, so I, I thought I thought we we are both globalists, internationalists, and I think for all the right reasons, Jay. And I kind of thought we would agree pretty uh, pretty strongly on that. So let's move on to something else. And we'll probably I don't know. We'll see how much we agree on. Before we get to Donald Trump, the Electoral Count Act, and and acts of censure and all kinds of stuff like that, we will take a quick break and we will be right back. This week, former President Donald Trump injected himself into the ongoing debate on reforming the Electoral Count Act. Uh, the Trump statement this week on DonaldJTrump.com. I read it every day, right? Um, the website read, if the vice president had absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the Senate, despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and rhino Republicans like wacky Susan Collins are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? 
Actually, what they're saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. Now, in another statement released a few days later, Trump argued that the House January 6th committee should investigate, in his words, why Nancy Pelosi did such a poor job of overseeing security and why Mike Pence did not send back the votes for recertification or approval in that it has now been shown that he clearly had the right to do so. Exclamation point. But that's every Trump sentence kind of ends with one of those. Anyway, Jay, you know, it's not often that we see a president call for uh, an investigation of his vice president uh, throwing directly under the bus. But and Pence responded this and Pence has done, I think, uh, tried to stay uh, out of direct conflict uh, with his former uh, uh, president, but saying uh, at at the Federalist Society meeting on Friday, uh, President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. He referred to January 6th as a dark day and said that the truth is that there's more at stake than our party or our political fortunes. If we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections. We'll lose our country. So, Jay, well, what do you think, I guess, first about Donald Trump's argument about the Electoral Count Act, as well as Pence's response? And do you think that this makes it more likely that Congress will actually pass some legislation or do something to clarify the Electoral Count Act? So Trump's uh, description of, of how that plays out, I think, is is just silly. It's it's uh, very much circular logic, um, if you want to even call it logic. Uh, so I, I, I think he's, he's wrong on all counts. We should get rid of the Electoral Count Act, uh, regardless of, of whether it, uh, uh, you know, his, his, you know, the, the point is it it doesn't allow the the vice president to, to pick the electors. Um, otherwise that, that would understand that would be completely rewriting the constitution. That's, that's not how it works. Everybody votes and then the vice president gets to pick. Um, it, it's it's just you know ludicrous on its face uh, that that act came up uh, in the context of a a weird contested election where you had um, contested slates uh, from different states coming in uh, at a, a different time and it, again I I think that the the intent was always that uh, uh, it's purely ceremonial and I guess you could. Uh, um, but but setting all that aside, it it there there's nothing inconsistent with saying we ought to get rid of the Electoral Count Act um, because it breeds confusion, uh, as opposed to we getting rid of it because it gives the vice president the right to determine a presidential election. Because um, because look either either way you 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 can't do that by statute. You could not statutorily decide, say. Uh, setting aside everything else in the Constitution, Vice President gets to pick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, likewise, if the Vice President were somehow constitutionally empowered to choose uh, electors, you couldn't statutorily take that power away from him. Right. Oh. You know, I mean, the Twelfth Amendment says the President of the Senate, and that's the Vice President, shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates. That's the electoral votes, and the vote shall then be counted. And- and and that's it. I mean, uh, the person having the largest number is president. Of board. And and so yeah. there's no that the vice president will pick and choose and decide which votes are legitimate. Right. And and so to me, really, if you if you want to be a constitutional conservative, and I think a lot of conservatives do, and I think we should all, you know, <laughs> pay attention to what the Constitution says. In a way, it's kind of a non-issue in the sense that if you look 
again, uh, to the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, right? Each state gets to choose uh, a, a number of electors equal to the number of senators and representatives. So they get to decide how those electors for president are chosen, not the vice president. Not yeah. anyone else. In other words, this is a state function. There's nothing yeah. about any federal body determining the legitimacy of those electors from the state. And if you care about the 10th Amendment, which says the powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution or prohibited by the states are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Well, uh, you know, for any kind of traditional conservative who believes in the constitutional text and believes in federalism would say, well, this is a state function. There shouldn't have been an electoral count act in the first place. Yeah. Uh, now, keep in mind to me, if we want to dig in the history of the, the purpose of the electoral count act was, well, what do you do if a state sends you two slates of electors? Um, and, and in that case, it was, well, we, we go to the we defer to that those state delegations to raise objections and so forth. Uh, again, that was a, a weird anomaly um, that I don't think would ever happen again. Um, uh, so I, I think it's, again, it's sort of a vestigial tale, and it was probably unconstitutional then, as, just as it is unconstitutional now. Um, but it was, it was never, it never really came into play. Um, so, so that's, that, those are my thoughts on, on that, on, on the, uh, uh, the one thing I would say is, is Trump is right that the uh, the January sixth committee should look at why uh, there wasn't a greater presence uh, or the, the Capitol uh, wasn't more prepared uh, for this. I think that's that's a reasonable argument. Um, I don't think the, the committee should look into why, <laughs> why Pence didn't reject uh, the votes and just name Trump president. Um, so, I, but I think let, let I, me pull back and, and not quite defend. Donald Trump. But his his point, I think, if you want to find a, I think a point that maybe is worth some more discussion aside from the capital security thing is, well, let's say that the vice president believes and has what he feels to be credible information that there has been massive fraud at the state yeah. level. Well, is the vice president supposed to just sort of stand by and say, well, these are the votes I've gotten? And my answer to that would be, well, yeah, because just because you might think something is the right thing to do doesn't necessarily mean that under our constitutional system, you have the power to do that thing. And that's the same argument we make about the courts all the time, saying that, yeah. well, you know, the court should rule this way because this is wrong. Well, that's but that's not the court's job. And if you if you allow anyone in our government to exceed their authority under the system to do the right thing, well, sometimes they're going to do the right thing when you don't think it's the right thing. And then the whole thing just basically breaks down. Right. That was really well said. Thank you. You know, I think credits too. or a couple of weeks ago, I, I raised the hypothetical of of well, what happens uh, if we get to. A, a close election, or it doesn't even really have to be that close, uh, in 2024, and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris says, well, I'm going to reject the votes of, of Texas and Georgia because of their uh, racist voting laws. I don't think those, those uh, electors were fairly elected and therefore should not be counted. Um, you know, that's, that's the sort of mischief that, that can, can happen. Now, um, my expectation would be if that were to happen, that the mainstream media would would hail her as a hero for civil rights. Um, 
but that's a different question. Yeah, I, I, I doubt that. There certainly would be some on the far left who might do that. But anyway, that's a different question. So, uh, you know, moving on to kind of a related sort of uh, issue, I guess you could say, is that Donald, uh, January 6th, that is, uh, Donald Trump recently told an audience at uh, one of his rallies, this was in uh, Texas, if I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. Then the next day. So, so unfairly. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> exclamation point. But the next day, then South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who's one, I'd say hot or cold on Trump, depending on how he felt the political winds were blowing, said that Trump's remarks were inappropriate and that pardons would inspire similar violence in the future or could. And then when Trump was asked to comment on this by Newsmax, he said, I would absolutely, because some of them are being treated very unfairly. Yeah, I would absolutely give them a pardon if things don't work out fairly. And of Graham, he said, I mean, Lindsay's a nice guy, but he's a rhino. Lindsay's wrong. Uh, it seems to me, or it's all some people, that the Republican National Committee might actually be siding with the former president here. I mean, on Friday, they voted to censure Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, two House Republicans on the January 6th committee, for, in the words of the censure resolution, participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. And, you know, this is the, the larger context here. Not only is Donald Trump the current front runner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, though, granted, that's a long ways off. Ken seems to think he might be indicted or in jail or something by that time. And, you know, maybe. But Donald Trump has also been a prodigious fundraiser since he's been out of office. I mean, this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that. Donald Trump's $122 million in cash on hand, that equals the amount of cash on hand from the Democratic and Republican National Committees combined. So that's 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 a whole lot there, and that's pretty unprecedented. So let me start with uh, the, uh, the pardon issue, Jay. What do you think about Donald Trump's positions on uh, position on pardons for January 6th people? Um. So first of all, I think presidents promising or implying that they might grant pardons uh, is a is a big problem, uh, and and uh, uh, we should we should look at that very much as a um, very very skeptically, right? That this is a president who might be indicating they might abuse their power. Um, to the extent he's saying, look, uh, people are treated unfairly or very, very unfairly, uh, I suppose uh, pardons might be necessary to some extent. My my sense is there there shouldn't be any kind of blanket pardons, right? Um, I, I could see, uh, say, for example, uh, you have one of these, these people who walks into the Capitol, uh, you know, didn't hurt anybody, but it was trespassing and, and you know, took some selfies. Uh, and gets convicted of domestic terrorism or something like that, sentenced to 20 years in prison. Um, that would be being treated very, very unfairly. And I think in those that kind of a situation, a pardon might be appropriate. Um, one, you don't say so before you're president or even officially running for president. Uh, and secondly, uh, I think pardons ought to be used to address specific uh, big uh, miscarriages of justice, not um, Blanket uh, uh, 
get out of jail free cards for for ideological uh, compatriots. So I mean that's I, so I think you can you can make an argument that listen if someone anyone uh, is is unfairly charged uh, unfairly convicted um, wrongly convicted uh, a pardon can be appropriate. And so the, but it's the, got to be yeah. a, a fact based determination and a case by case determination. Yeah, and it seems that uh, for for everything we know, in fact, a lot of folks would say that the Justice Department has been uh, erring, if if it erring is the yeah. right word, on the side of being more lenient than than more severe. I guess in an attempt yeah. to more, be more likely to secure uh, uh, convictions, but but also I think you know it's. I, it sounds to me like you're saying that the appropriate response from a presidential candidate would, or even a president would be, well, you know, I would always consider pardons in cases of specific cases of injustice, but it would be inappropriate to comment on anything without having the facts exactly. of the case in front of yes. me, which is not a, yep. n- not the sort of phrase that would ever come out of, you know, Donald Trump's mouth, certainly. But there's another issue that he raised in that Newsmax interview. He made, comp- in the pardons thing, he, he made comparisons of January 6th to the Black Lives Matter protest in uh, in the summer of 2020. Uh, Donald Trump said, "Look, they tried to burn down. We're, we're talking federal buildings. They were they were terrible. Every Democrat city was on fire. Well, okay, whatever. Trumpian hyperbole, and nobody says anything about it. Antifa and BLM are causing such problems, including death. They're not treating these people the same way. Now, I should point out that." Of course, this was back when it was Donald Trump's Department of Justice because these protests were the summer of 2020. And in fact, groups on the left at that time argued that the feds were actually overly aggressive in targeting protesters. There was this report that came out in 2021 from a group called Movement for Black Lives. Uh, They found that in something like 92.6 of the BLM protest federal cases, there were actually equivalent state level charges that could have been brought against defendants. And among those, 88 percent of the federal criminal charges carried more severe potential sentences. Their argument was, well, you know, the feds are just really going after these people for partisan political purposes, essentially led by, you know, the attorney general Barr at the time. Um, And it's I don't know what we can make of like arrest or conviction or whatever comparisons. But if we look at BLM, there are over 13,600 arrests nationwide related to those protests, according to the FBI, Uh, around 1,429 cases against protesters or rioters, whatever you want to call them. A little over a thousand of those were state cases. Three hundred sixty seven were federal. If we compare that to the January 6th instance, 726 cases have been filed so far against those protesters or rioters. And those are all, I believe, federal cases because of where it happened. So that's just by the nature yeah. of that thing. So, I mean, what do you think about that comparison? I mean, my, my first, I guess my first take on that is it's always sort of difficult and and dangerous and oftentimes not good to compare kind of the apples and oranges things saying, well, they're both people who are doing kind of a similar thing. I, I always shy away from those sort of comparisons because I think they can very easily manipulate people into kind of believing things that aren't necessarily the case. But I want to get your take on that. So I, I guess if, if I'm a, a politician, I think usually the safe bet is to say, uh, I'm against riots <laughs> yeah. across the board. That sounds right. Sure. I mean, to be the the anti-riot uh, uh, candidate, I think is where you want to be. Um, so, look, I, I think it's it's certainly fair to condemn um, uh, the the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, riots, uh, the Antifa involvement there. Um, 
And uh, those those folks uh, should be prosecuted and I think hopefully are being prosecuted. Um, the federal cases in those, of course, uh, you know, it, it's not a, a federal case if they're going down the street and they smash out some store windows. Uh, in, in most cases, I suppose you could probably make out some kind of federal case. But it is when you're trying to burn down a courthouse um, as, as they they do sort of every week in, in Portland, just because that's that's what they do. But. Um, so I, I think that that makes sense why there are different, a different mix of, of state versus federal prosecutions. I think there's an argument also that, um, uh, the feds, uh, under, under bar could have made that, uh, in many cases, state prosecutors were not taking up these cases. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we have this phenomenon, uh, across the country with some of these, um, uh, Prosecutors, San Francisco, now New York, uh, where uh, Chicago, um, where there is a reluctance to to prosecute. Uh, so I, I can see there's an argument there. Well, the federal government needs to step in uh, in those situations. Um, so I, I guess, you know, is there a comparison? I think, well, sure, it's comparison. But I, I guess my response would be uh, riots are riots and, and we ought to treat the rioters um you know they ought to be prosecuted under the law based on on what they did, uh, and and you, you take it from there. And the the ideology of behind the riot uh, really shouldn't take you know come into play. If you put if you put a rock through a window, it doesn't matter what what you, what reason you're doing it for. That's uh, that's the same sort of crime and should be punished the same way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, well, I, yeah. And if you yeah if you if you try to burn down a federal courthouse. Yeah. Uh, or if you or if you, you know, kick in the doors of the Capitol uh, again, that's that's the same sort of federal crime. Yeah. So. OK. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh, you know, I, the last thing I want to talk about kind of on this general topic is I mentioned the Republican National Committee. They voted to censure uh, Kinzinger and Cheney. Now, for Kinzinger, it's not a big deal because he's retiring. But Cheney plans to run for reelection. And so the censure means that they withdraw the, all the party support, basically. Uh, and and uh, again, in the words of the, the censure resolution, at least part of it, right, for participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Now, that's only one part of the censure motion. There are a whole bunch of whereases and, and, and what have you. It's not that long. But one of the, one of the other whereases that sort of caught my eye, Jay, is they say, um, whereas the, the conference, that means the RNC, must design the strategy to stop the radical Biden agenda and retire Nancy Pelosi. Here's the part that caught my eye, tasks which require that. that all Republicans pull in the same direction. And so, you know, I, I read that and I just read the motion in general. And I thought, so at what point does disagreeing with the party make you persona non grata officially in this case? And and I wanted to get your take on the censure motion. And is this a fact that, you know, I mean, uh, Mitt Romney came out and said, you know, this is not a good thing and people should be you know, able to freely uh, express, you know, conscience on, on these issues and not be drummed out of the party. So I wanted to get your take on, on this censure motion and what what you take away from it. So the whereas clause that you just you just read there, um, all pulling in the same direction. Um, I, I would agree with that 100 percent. And for that very reason, would would look at the RNC and say, what what the hell are you thinking? Um, that, that, yes, uh, we you know, the the issue should be uh, how do we get rid of Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and Chuck Schumer? 
Um, but rather than pushing that issue, uh, the RNC is continuing to uh, divide the party by relitigating Trump uh, January 6th and, um, uh, you know, the, the Trump delusions that he won. The other thing that that strikes me as in, in the bigger sense, kind of political malpractice on this is, is, you know, I think was Nancy Pelosi who, who said, uh, uh, you know, January 6th is every day. Um, and, and I think, uh, I, I said at one point that January 6th is the Democrats favorite day now. Uh, and, and it is. So if you're a Republican, just, I'm, I'm talking about the purely Machiavellian strategy behind this. The last thing you want to do is keep bringing up January 6th. Um, you know, the, the, there's, there's so much, uh, great stuff to run on here, right? I mean, uh, you know, in, inflation, uh, the crime, um, uh, general, you know, Biden incompetency, all, all these things are, are great campaign issues, uh, for Republican candidates. Um, but instead the party's sort of getting bogged down, uh, in, in, in refighting this, this old war, um, and, and going after its own people and, you know, forming the circular firing squad. So I think it's, it's just tremendously stupid. Um, the the re the reason the reason I would say the reason they're doing it I understand is because they're the short term gain is this is an easy way to to raise some money yeah I mean if you look at RNC fundraising proposals they have Trump all over them because they know yeah. especially for the small money donors and in fact that 122 million I mentioned that Trump has in cash on hand the, the biggest portion of that was from smaller donations and so yeah I, I think you're right it definitely is a you can understand it from a short term perspective but I do think that in the end even though I mean at this point still I believe the last polling data I've seen suggests that a majority of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. There are certainly tens of millions of Americans, if not more, that believe that if you're trying to build a winning national coalition, a stable winning national coalition, this is not really, it seems to me, the way to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, now the gambit here, right, is that, look, you can do this and get all the money and then pivot to wherever you need to be uh, later on. And and maybe that works, but but my sense is why you know why invite a bunch of primaries uh, for for candidates where you you spend more money than you need to right? There's more Republican money getting spent on both sides. That again, if everyone's pulling in the right direction, same direction, um, uh, can be better spent against uh, against the Democrats. Is yeah, you know, you so, know my sense as, of things. Sinead O'Connor said, "Fight the real enemy," right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. My sense of things is that, and I'll actually be a little optimistic on uh, on the GOP and Trump, which I'm usually not, right? But uh, in thinking about this, it seems to me that it's quite possible that the Republican Party, as sort of an institution, a collection of individuals, is not necessarily as Trumpist as a lot of people seem to think. I think it's just very well like political parties, successful political parties are very strategic, very Machiavellian in the sense of, well, if Donald Trump is going to bring in money, invoking his name and going to give us some wins, we'll use that to the extent we can. And yeah. I think what we're likely to see is if these if, if Trump supported candidates do not do all that well in the midterms, if they don't do very well in the primaries, I think we're going to see some of that support start to 
fade away, basically. Donald Trump will be the leader of the Republican Party as long as he is useful to Republicans who want power. And as soon as that's not the case, now, that being said, there, there certainly are some people who are true believers, and there's a small number of them, and, and there have been attempts to kind of put them more into decision-making roles in the party. But I still would like to believe or would hope that those folks are in the minority and that the, the sort of political realists, political pragmatists are still sort of in most of the positions of power. Yeah. So the other, I mean, the other, uh, if, if you want to do the really deep, deep think and, you know, multidimensional kind of, kind of chess is there could be a thought in the RNC that, as you said, Kinger, Kinger is retiring and is Cheney really going to get, uh, beaten, um, uh, in Wyoming? Um, my sense would be no. Would, would she, is she really likely to lose a primary or, or you know, I don't think so. So maybe they they could say, look, this is the safe bet. Um, we'll show our our uh, Trump bona fides here, uh, raise some money, and at the at the end of the day, it'll be sort of a no no harm done. Um, I think that's that's one way. Again, if you're you're playing the kind of Machiavellian game, which is which is what they do, right? That's their job. Um, uh, that I, I could see that. Now, I I, I disagree with the analysis because. Uh, I, I think you every time you you do this, or at least with the analysis of well, we're going to censure these people. Uh, I think if you want to raise money off Donald Trump, okay, that makes sense. But you can probably do that without uh, trashing uh, other other people, um, other other candidates, and you know violating what uh, Ronald Reagan uh, Ronald Reagan's eleventh commandment. So um, you should tell people what that yeah, is. I, 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 dis- I, dis- be- I mean, I, I disagree with yeah, strategically, yeah. And the love of the commandment, that's uh, thou shall not speak ill of fellow Republicans, correct? I seem to recall that. Exactly. There that's you it. go. Yeah. And I think that's, that's important because it sets that precedent, right, where there are these purity tests for being in the party. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think that definitely is long term, very, uh, very destructive or short term games that in the end aren't worth it. So we, we, I think, are very much in agreement on that. Um, now, with that, we come to the end of the free ad-supported segment of the show, uh, and we have a whole bunch more we're going to be discussing on the full-length episode. And if you would like to get that and you're not a Patreon supporter, well, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash politics, guys. Uh, but if you are not in a position to support the show, just send me an email, mikeypoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to the full episodes. And if you'd rather not support us on Patreon, well, you can do that through Venmo or at Politics Guys, as well as on PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe rate the show on whatever podcast app you listen to and leave a review and also share episodes on social media. That really helps us out a lot. Thanks so much.